Welcome to Inside the Road, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Mark Landau, the founder of L1 Capital, who also is the co-portfolio manager of their long short strategy, a strategy that's returned just over 23% per annum since its inception back in 2014. We talked to him about the long short strategy, how it's fared over the years and what his outlook going forward in the markets is. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed nor is it specific advice. You're encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and seek advice and read all offer materials before considering investments. Please remember to keep your emails coming. You can email me on david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the podcast. Mark Landau, welcome to Inside the Road. Thank you for having me. Mark, perhaps you could kick off by giving our listeners a little bit of insight into who you are and how you came to be investing money. Um, so as, as hopefully some of the listeners know, uh, I'm the Joint Managing Director and Co-Chief Investment Officer of L1 Capital. Um, I founded the business with Rafi Lamb back in 2007, so we've, we're coming up to 15 years now. And um, I came into funds management in a pretty convoluted way. Um, I started out uh, university doing commerce and economics, um, was obsessed with the stock market, but had no idea all the different roles of you know the difference between a stockbroker and a fund manager and a private bank, and um, realized over time that I wanted to be doing something in the stock market, but got convinced by a good friend of mine at the end of university that forget about doing stock market, you should be a management consultant. And um, it sounded very glamorous, you get to travel the world and solve the problems of different companies. And um, as someone who's travel obsessed, um, I found that pretty compelling, so I went and did that for a few years, uh, but then realized a few years in that I really did want to do something with the stock market and um, ended up moving into funds management um, a few years later. So what is it about the stock market that, uh, that, that you're really taken by? Um, I think if you've got um, a curiosity about the world, if you want to be, if you're competitive and you want to try and see if you can uh, you know, match it with the, you know, some of the smartest people in the world that are given the same amount of information and given the same, I guess, ingredients and see if you can come up with a, a way to profit from those insights. Um, to me, um, intellectually, the, the amount of stimulation you get in a typical day with all the different news you get exposed to, all the different people you get to meet, all the different ways you can go about your research, to me feels like the best job in the world. Um, I think I'm a very competitive person and I think it suits my personality that you've got a, a very objective scoreboard in the stock market. You know, it's not a, a judgment call or someone's opinion whether you've done a good job or a bad job. Over time, the numbers do the talking and I think I like that objectiveness of the stock market that you know, in the short term you can be lucky or unlucky, but in the long term, um, it's really gonna come down to the quality of your research and the, and the way that you position your portfolio. And tell us about L1. Um, so L1, um, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, we founded back in 2007 and when Rafi and I started the business, we really wanted it to be an investment house. And I think you know, one of the things that we noticed at that time was that a lot of the funds out there were really marketing businesses. They were really selling products and the sales team and the marketing team were running the business. And there were very few fund managers where it was a true investment house where the investment team was what was the center of the organization and what we, want, what we wanted to be known for. And you know, Rafi used to work with uh, Peter Cooper and David Paradise, and I think they're cut from exactly that cloth. And we're, a lot of the things that we've built at L1, especially in the early days, were, were modeled on what we learned from those guys. 
Um, and I think we felt that there was a lot of things that were wrong about the way that fund managers were building their business, the way that they were, uh, the products are offering clients, the, the index hugging, there was a lot of stuff that sort of rubbed us the wrong way and we felt, um, you know, we're, we're pretty um, you know, opinionated and we're pretty, um, you know, at, at the time we started L1, Raph was 29, I was 30. Like it's, it's extremely unusual for people that age to start out on your own and I think it's reflective of our personalities that we're sort of people that, not in an arrogant way but in a self-confident way, we feel like we can do this better and we can, we can offer clients something different. We can hopefully give clients better performance and a lot of the things that we've built have been centered around that and everything that we've built at L1 really comes down to the investment team and the performance that we can deliver and that'll give staff great outcomes, it'll give clients great outcomes, it'll give us personal satisfaction and that's what gives us the license to grow the business rather than starting with a marketing and a sales focus where essentially you're just selling whatever's hot that week and I don't think it has the same durability long term. And you talked about your work in management consulting. Is there anything that you learned during that period that's helped you be a better investor? Or is it merely a good few years to travel the world and do some interesting stuff? Um, I actually learned a huge amount. And at the time, you're exactly right, it felt like a bit of a waste of time because it wasn't building towards my funds management career directly. But what it taught me was going into companies, and a lot of the work I did was for ASX 100 companies, and you'd be trying to enact some change or you'd be trying to um, understand a strategic issue they've got and just seeing the, how slow it is to enact change. So if you've just come into finance, you just start in funds management, in the model, you, you say, oh, there's gonna be this improvement and you put it in for the next year, massive margin improvement or massive growth. It takes years to make a fundamental change in a big company. You know, there's IT systems, there's thousands of people, there's changes of process. It's, it's a much more slow moving beast than what you appreciate if you haven't been doing that sort of work. And the other thing it taught me is um, I've built up an incredible network of contacts across lots of different industries because a lot of the people I was really good friends with when I was in management consulting end up being senior people at the banks or in the telco industry or in you know, some other sector. And I think having that network of contacts and people that I have, have been friends with for you know, almost 25 years now, that's, that's a huge advantage in helping me understand the different challenges and opportunities that different industries have. So does that network give you a competitive advantage at the moment in terms of information and understanding about some of the industries in which you're investing? Um, these days the advantage is much smaller because now we've got a much more comprehensive, sophisticated investment team that can handle that. In the early days when it was just myself and Raf, um, you know, two-person investment team and you won and the, the contacts and the knowledge was much fresher, it probably had a much more direct benefit. I think these days um, it's, it's much less impactful from a performance point of view, I'd say. How did you meet Rafi and how did you know he was the right person to go into business with? Um, so it's, it's an interesting story. Rafi started at Cooper Investors, or as it was known then, Paradise Cooper, at the end of 2001. Um, he was the first employee hired for the investment team by Peter Cooper, um, straight out of university. And Rafi and I started our careers at basically the same time. Um, I was covering different sectors to RAF but there was one sector that overlapped, which was retail. So we're, we're both Jewish. Um, I turn up at the, you know, the Woolworths lunch in month one at, at Invesco, where I was working, and I see he's got a kippah on, you know, he's got the head covering, and he's got you know, a kosher meal that arrives. And I'm like, okay, he's the only other Jewish guy in the, in the industry, and we start chatting, 
And we quickly realized that we're very similar in the way that we think about stocks. So we would find that a lot of the stocks that everyone had given up on or a lot of the stocks that no one was really that interested in, we were the only two people turning up to that meeting. And we quickly realized that we were extremely similar in the way we thought about opportunities. And even though Raf and I have very different personalities outside of work, we have exactly the same thought process in terms of um, hunting down ideas. So we very quickly became incredibly close friends. You know, at the time we were single, we'd go on holidays together, we'd hang out on Saturday night together. And we kept on talking about, you know, one day we'll start our own, our own fund. And it wasn't until five years later um, that we felt that we had enough experience to be able to go out on our own. Um, but, you know, Raph, you know, still today is one of my closest friends. Um, I, I'm incredibly lucky to have gone into business with him. I think Raph is, yeah, in my mind, he's the best investor that I've met in Australia. And if you look at his track record over 20 years, I think it, it stands up next to anyone. And on top of that, I think he's one of the most um, generous and loyal you know, business partners and friends. So I count myself lucky that we had that lunch together back in, back in the Woolworths lunch in uh, 2002. Wow, it's a great story. Not too many of those that you hear, so it's fantastic. Um, was it difficult to make the decision or nerve wracking to go out by yourselves and how did that come about and how was it funded? Um, so we funded it by ourselves. We, we did have some chats with some of the incubators and at the time there were some other really good fund managers that started out through the incubator approach. So, you know, the guys um, at Grand Cape who started out with Challenger, or as it's now known for Dante, um, there were a few other funds that had just started up. And we took advice from Peter Cooper and David Paradise. And the consistent feedback they gave us was, in their eyes, it's the easy decision for the first few years, but it's the wrong decision on a 20 year view. Mm -hmm. Because you want to have total control over how you run the business, how you hire staff, what funds you launch, and to keep it that true investment house. The risk is with an incubator, now this is not always the case, but it's the risk that you can get it driven by the sales team and that runs the risk that it turns into that situation I talked about earlier where it's a sales organisation, it's not an investment house. And you know, Raf and I are clearly doing this for the long term, we're 15 years in, but we're still in our mid-40s, so we've still got you know, plenty, of, plenty of years left, hopefully. And I think what, what Peter and David showed us was it's going to be harder work in the early years, but you'll be much more comfortable with what you end up with 10 or 20 years down the track. And I think that was brilliant advice um, from those guys. We've had Peter on the, uh, the podcast in the past, um, so our listeners are familiar with him. Um, and I, I don't think you're the first of the Cooper Cubs <laughs> either uh, to be on the show. So um, it, it's good to have that link there. So tell us about the, which I think is, a, if I'm right, the, the flagship fund really for L1 is the Long Short Fund. That's right. Can you tell, tell the listeners a little bit about that, what its objective is and how, about it, how it goes about its business? Okay, so the Long Short Fund, um, as the name suggests, is a fund that can go long or short. And, and what that means is when you buy a stock, you go long. When you short a stock, you're effectively betting that the share price will fall and you profit if the share price falls. And, and the reason we started the fund was that we felt there were lots of opportunities that we were missing in our long-only funds. So when we started the business back in 2007, for the first seven years of L1, we just had a long-only fund, which basically meant we could only buy shares, we couldn't short them, we couldn't do international, and we couldn't adjust our market exposure. So if we thought the market was really risky and overvalued, we were still fully invested. If we thought the market was oversold and amazing, we would still have the same exposure. And what we love about the long-short fund and the reason we, we created that fund was there were three things that we were missing that we could take advantage of. Shorting stocks, 
which we've made a lot of money on over the years, particularly in the last couple of years. Secondly, having that variable market exposure to be able to take advantage of you know, crashes and booms and do the opposite to what the herd is doing. And lastly, to be able to exploit our research overseas, not just in Australia. And yeah, each of those uh, parts of the story have been a huge advantage for us and we think they're enduring advantages because very few funds that, that we see in the market have those three aspects. So the objective of the fund is what or how do you express that? Or another way, sometimes I like to drive at this is how do you get remunerated or what's the fee structure? Yeah, so the, the objective of the fund is to deliver at least a 10% return per annum to investors over the long term. Um, the fund has returned 23% per annum after fees over almost eight years now. It's a good tick. And, and the market over the same time has done roughly 8%. So we've done about 15% better per annum um, over eight years. And, and bear in mind, we've got a value bias. So the, the most, you know, the biggest headwind you could possibly have as a fund manager over the last eight years is to have a value bias. It's only been the growth stocks, the sexy tech stocks that have been rallying and our part of the market has really struggled. But what we're really proud of is the fact that we've been able to deliver those returns despite the fact we've had a headwind. Now, hopefully that headwind is turning into a tailwind over the last you know, couple of quarters, but even with the headwind, we've been able to deliver um, well above that investment target. We charge, um, depending on the, the um, class that you invest in, somewhere between a one and a quarter and one and a half percent management fee, and we charge a 20% performance fee with a permanent high watermark. And what that means is if we were to underperform, if we lose you 10% of your money, we have to earn that back before we can charge any performance fees. And the performance fees over zero, is it? Or performance okay. fees over zero. Okay. And essentially what, what we believe is that if we can deliver on our 10% return objective after fees with much better downside protection in falling markets, and, and we've demonstrated that very consistently over the last eight years, we think clients are getting a great outcome. And, and where do you expect or where has most of the return come from? The long positions or the short positions or what sort of proportion? Um, since inception of the strategy. Yeah. Most of the returns have come from the long side. And mathematically, that's logical because you might find a stock where you triple your money or you quadruple your money. Mm. On the short side, it's not possible it's to make yep. multiples. You know, the most you can make is 100% because the share price can only fall mm -hmm. 100%. In most cases on a short, you might make 20 to 30% if, if a short goes well. And shorts, because they're riskier, because obviously a share price can rally a lot and that can expose you to much much larger losses on the short side, we size those positions much smaller as well to reflect the risk. So talk to yeah. us about that relativity and how many positions are at what sort of size, because I think it's quite important. A lot of people don't always think about the fact that, you know, on the upside, the share can continue to grow, you know, to an infinite number. On the downside, it can only go down to zero. Yep. Um, and and so, so it's not a symmetric bet, if you'd like. So, so how many shorts would you typically have in the book and at what size would you tend to have them in? And on the long side, how many positions would you have and what sort of sizes are they? Yeah, so for us, you know, a typical portfolio has about 80 positions. Mm -hmm. 55 would be longs and roughly 25 would be shorts on average. A typical long is about a 3% weight. Yeah, if we find a you know, typical company we like, it's got good liquidity, um, good opportunity would be about 3% in the portfolio. On the flip side, a compelling short opportunity would be about 2%. So the reason we have it at that smaller size is, um, if you haven't shorted before, one of the things that's very unusual is that your position size grows as you're getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, the one positive of stuffing up a long opportunity or yeah, when you buy a Yeah, the problem share, goes away. At least your problem shrinking. 
Yeah. So what we want to do is have a position size where we're not too fast if the stock is going against us, but we want to have a major catalyst that's going to be a major negative event that's going to cause that share price to collapse. And what we're waiting for is to get the timing as close as possible to perfect where we're essentially shorting the stock very close to when the bad news is likely to hit, whether it's a profit downgrade, whether it's a capital raising, some new competitor, that's essentially what we're playing. And we're very, very disciplined on when we put on the short, what the position size is, what we're looking for, when we close it out. That's all very planned in advance before we actually put the position on. And what sort of themes, it seems in reading through your material and having invested in the fund in the past, um, that you're quite thematic. What sort of themes in the past have worked for you um, that, that you really liked on, on both sides, um, long and yeah. short? So we, we express the portfolio to our clients in thematic terms, but when you think about what we're actually doing day to day is very detailed bottom-up stock research. So even though we talk in themes and top-down, that's not how we build the portfolio. We don't sort of say, okay, I like resources, mm. let's go find a resource stock, or you know, I don't like tech, let's go find a tech short. It's much more forensically going through each company and industry and working out wh what our insights are and what's the best way to play that. So on the long side, the things that have worked for us, the things that we like have been both new energy and old energy. So new energy is things like lithium where you're playing essentially the transition to electric vehicles. That's been a major winner for us over the last year. It's, a, it's an area of the market that we now think is fully priced and we've exited. On the flip side, um, old energy, which is about the least sexy um, sector you can think of. About a year ago, we were very positive about the recovery from COVID. Mm -hmm. And we'd done a huge amount of work on the vaccine. We had a lot of belief that the demand was gonna come back as people start to drive to work again, as people start to fly, demand profile was gonna recover. And because the crash in the oil market was so bad, the supply response was gonna be very slow. You know, corporates in the oil sector were so gun shy of investing in new production. On top of that, all the ESG pressure not to invest in new production and essentially you're gonna have a supply shortage. And we think that the way things are trending, that supply shortage is gonna become very acute by the end of the year, unless you get some sort of, uh, whether it's an Iran deal, whether it's a Russia, Ukraine, um, I guess, peace deal, something like that is needed. Otherwise, the oil market is gonna stay incredibly tight. And we think that you know the companies that we're invested in, at the price we bought them, they're now generating about 60 or 70% of their market cap in cash flow. Um, wow. At today's prices, it's about 20 or 30% of their market cap in cash flow. And we think that as long as the management team are doing something sensible with that cash, we think they're fantastic investments. And, and tell me, how are you thinking about the market at the moment? Um, obviously, you know, people will point to a war in the Ukraine. They will point to um, a global pandemic and China going through some pretty severe lockdowns. Uh, and they'll point to a Federal Reserve Bank that is tightening and every other, well, eight out of the 10 times it's tightened has resulted in a recession. So, you know, they're always interesting times to invest, but this genuinely feels like a very interesting time to invest. How, how are you guys facing things in that area? Um, it's a really interesting time that we're catching up because at any point in time for the last two years, we've been maximum bullish. We've never had the portfolio positioned in a more bullish fashion than since March 2020. And March 2020, when the market crashed and COVID fears were at their maximum, we were the most aggressive buyer of stocks in the Aussie market. So, you know, we're not a huge fund, but there was just no one else buying at that time. So one of the things that's interesting to us is that we felt like the last two years was a no-brainer to be maximum long stocks. And the reason was 
you had the central banks injecting massive amounts of liquidity, zero interest rates, governments providing lots of stimulus to consumers. You had earnings that were likely to surprise on the upside because corporates had cut costs aggressively and revenues were typically bouncing back fast. You also had amazing valuations. And the last one is you had investors paranoid that, the, that things were terrible. And that's often the best time to invest when, you know, when fear is maximum. Fast forward two years and all of those things have largely reversed. So valuations are not so amazing anymore. Central banks are no longer injecting liquidity. They're withdrawing liquidity. Rates are going up. Earnings have downside risk, if anything. So I think, not that I think the market's gonna crash, but I think the easy money, the no-brainer money, is now over. And now it's gonna come down to the skill of a fund manager to try and deliver you know, double-digit returns, which I think are gonna be much more difficult over the next five years compared to what we've been through over the last couple of years. And Mark, they talk about learning a lot from people like yourself who've got great skill and being able to display outperformance, but they also talk about learning from one's errors. What, what's an area or an instance where you can say, look, we've learned from that and we now understand and therefore we're better investors for it? Yeah, I think all fund managers um, get the, the luxury of having lots of mistakes because it's not possible to have you know, 50 or 80 positions and they all go beautifully. Um, I think the great fund managers over time might have a 60% hit rate. So it's really, it's a game of averages. It's not a, it's not a case of you know, pretending that you get everything right. Um, one of the things that Raf and I have been good at is whenever we stuff something up, there's a bit of a, you know, a sort of a, yeah, a, a casual chat afterwards about, okay, how do, what did we get wrong? When, would she, when should we have realised we got that wrong and things weren't going to plan? And I think one of the things we learnt, you know, 2018 was a really bad year for us. We've had six fantastic years. In, in six out of seven years, we've done better than a 25% return. But in 2018, we had a shocker. We had lots of mistakes and it was just one of those years where it felt like everything was going wrong. We've gone back and checked through every one of those stuff ups and said, okay, when should we have realized that was not going to plan? And I think the biggest learning was as soon as you realize it's gone off the rails, like as, as Raf says, hope is not a strategy. Like hoping that it's gonna fix itself is, is not the way to, to deal with it. The way to deal with it is to be very clinical and decisive and say, okay, I got this one wrong. There's nothing wrong with getting something wrong, but the mistake is if you don't deal with it fast. And I think we've learned that hoping that something's gonna improve or hoping that a management team's gonna get smarter or gonna start to do the right thing by shareholders, that doesn't tend to happen. What tends to happen is if going off the rails a little bit, it ends up going off the rails a lot. And we're a value manager, you're more at risk of having stocks that go off the rails. That's why you're buying them so cheap. But the risk is you have to be very, very vigilant not to believe management, not to just listen to the stockbrokers, to go and do the work yourself, speak to competitors, speak to suppliers, speak to customers, and really form your own independent view. And if it's not going to plan, act very fast. And I think that for me, that's the biggest lesson of, of, the, of the 2018 period. What would be an example of a more growth orientated company that you like, or you have invested in the past that you like, where you're prepared to get there from a valuation? I'm just trying to understand you know, where you are prepared to go into something that has a bit more of a growth story in it. And you know, obviously Tesla's too far out there for you. Yep. Um, maybe Amazon, maybe something else. What's one that you've been long um, and, and done well out of? Um, there's quite a few of them. So we're not anti-growth stocks. What we're anti is paying 50 or 100 or 1,000 times earnings because you just have to believe too much to be perfect 
to get the numbers to stack up. You know, what we want to see is a company where the PE multiple or the free cash flow yield is going to get to a, an acceptable level within a relatively short period of time. You know, none of us can predict what the world's going to be like in seven years or 10 years. And for us to pretend that we can forecast that far ahead, I think we're deluded. So relatively short, what, three to five years in your... Yeah, I would say three years' time. Okay. So a, a great example of that is James Hardy. You know, when the US housing market bombed out, mm -hmm. James Hardy shares were $5. It was clearly screening as value, but it's a growth stock. It's a, it's a really exciting long-term structural growth story. Um, we sold it too early. Um, it's often the mistake we make is that we don't sort of buy into the dream. Once it hits what we think is fair value, we exit. Um, but James Hardy's one example. Uh, we bought shares in Visa, um, which was on a, you know, for most people, they would regard that as a relatively high multiple stock. I think we paid 25 or 30 times earnings. Uh, but it's a company that's delivered such strong and consistent growth. It's got such massive barriers to entry, um, you know, incredibly dominant position. So it's one where we can get our head around it. At the moment, one of the growth stocks we really like is Flutter. Um, we've bought into that relatively recently. Um, Flutter is a UK listed stock. Um, it's, it's the number one player in US sports betting. It's also the number one in the UK and Australia. And we think we're about to enjoy a massive structural boom in US sports betting. It's only just starting to get legalized on a state-by-state -state basis in the US. Uh, yeah. So I think, I'm, if I'm right, it might have been, what, three, six months ago that a state like Florida became legalized for, for betting off track or sports betting. And, and, and that's yeah. the size of, the Florida market's the size of Australia. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you look at the US market and the projections are it'll end up being six times the size of the UK and the UK is roughly double the size of Australia. So mm -hmm. these are enormous markets on, a, on an individual state basis. And what's exciting to us is you have this incredible competitive intensity as people try to win customers in the first year or so. But once you get past that initial phase, it becomes an incredibly profitable business and it's very capital light. You know, there's no factory to build, there's no capex to spend. It's really a pure digital business. And we paid roughly 20 times earnings for that business, but within that 20 times, you're effectively capitalizing losses that they're incurring in the US into perpetuity. So if you believe, like we do, that they're gonna go from loss to very profitable within a couple of years, um, that 20 times is really closer to 15 times, mm -hmm. which is a bargain compared to most Aussie industrials that are trading on, say, 20 times, and they're barely growing earnings. We feel like Flutter as the number one player, huge structural growth. You know, the, the US market is going to grow by five times over the next five years. You compare that to an Aussie industrial that might be growing three to five percent. Um, to us, it feels um, like a no-brainer. And what sort of split do you normally have in the portfolio between domestic in that L1 long short, yep. domestic versus international? Uh, so we've got a hard limit of 30 percent that we can invest overseas. Yes. Um, that's the aggregate of the longs and shorts. And the reason we put that limit in was, well, for starters in year one, we didn't have any track record in international. So it was a bit of a leap of faith for our investors to back us investing overseas. All of our track record up to that point was in Australia. Secondly, Australia is still the main focus of our research and we want to do those offshore opportunities very opportunistically when we've got some special insight into that business or that sector. So, you know, the US sports betting stocks, we came across that because we were doing research on PointsBet, which is an Aussie listed sports betting company. To understand that business, we wanted to meet with all the competitors, understand who was likely to win. And from our point of view, Flutter and Entain are likely to be the winners rather than PointsBet. So, okay, we've, we've done the research, it's an easy one to invest in rather than turning up in the UK and just saying, okay, let's go find a, a stock to buy. Um, it's much more um, focused and 
um, I guess not, not as broad based. And do you have any limits on other markets that you can go into or is it international full stop? Can you go down into frontier or developing markets, et cetera? Um, according to our mandate, we can invest in any offshore market. In, in reality, we stick to the developed markets. So it's essentially North America, you know, US and Canada, um, continental Europe and UK and Hong Kong. Um, we haven't invested in any frontier or emerging market um, at any time. Okay. And in the market at the moment, what type of areas are you feeling good about shorting? Um, so there's been two main areas that we've thought were overvalued and they had major negative catalysts. The first one is the, the, what we would call the profitless tech stocks. So those stocks where from March 2020 until about 18 months later, that part of the market rallied about 300%. And there was no change in the earnings, there was no meaningful change in the outlook for these businesses long term. In some cases they had a one-off benefit, they might have been an online retailer which obviously benefited from COVID, they might have been a, a SaaS business, but the move in the share prices of three, four, five hundred percent we thought was dramatically um, you know, out of whack with the fundamentals and they didn't start being cheap either. So they're really overvalued, they go up four or five X. We thought that was ridiculous and then what we've seen over the last period, so we shorted companies like Peloton, um, Shopify, um, the, the whole non-profitable tech basket as well. Um, that index is down about 50% over the last six months. Um, what, what some people may not realize is that 50% of the NASDAQ is down at least 50% um, from, from its recent highs. So it, it's been an absolute bloodbath in that space. Um, and we've made a lot of money from that short. The other one that we've been shorting, and I still think it has a bit to play out, is shorting the US consumer discretionary stocks. So obviously with interest rates moving higher, with a lot of the stimulus having now been spent, a lot of the retailers are enjoying unbelievably um, extreme sales and also even more extreme margins because there was no discounting because there was a shortage of stock availability. So gross margins were elevated, sales were elevated, and now you've got share prices that might be three or four or 500% above where they were pre-COVID because brokers are now assuming that that's a sustainable margin level, that's a sustainable sales level. We think that's ridiculous. It's going to normalise as consumers start to spend more on travel and services and away from buying goods at a shop, which was pretty much all you could do with your money for the last two years. So we've been shorting, um, you know, we, we don't sort of talk publicly about all our shorts, but some of the ones that we've done were Williams-Sonoma, which has fallen from around 220 to around 130. Uh, we've, we've been shorting some of the other US retailers. Um, one of the other ones we shorted was Logitech, which is obviously a very big player in the you know, keyboards, mice mm -hmm. sort of space. Yep. Uh, we made about 40% on that short as well. That, those, um, in the case of Logitech, we've closed that short already. Terrific, and tell us about some of the other strategies that L1 has, because it's quite diverse and eclectic, and tell me how you think about or come across those, because it seems to me that you've done a few in partnership as well. Yeah, so essentially, Rafi and I um, co-head the Long Short Fund, and the other funds we have we don't manage directly. So the Global Opportunities Fund, which is run by David Feldman out of the US, that's a convertible debt fund. And um, it's been going since the middle of 2015. Um, it's got a fantastic track record. It's done roughly 36% per annum after fees. It's one of the best performing hedge funds globally. Um, and it's a very uh, niche strategy. So essentially David's finding small caps and micro cap companies where it's difficult for them to raise money directly. They might have a retail shareholder base, he looks to offer them a convertible um, debt deal, and essentially he gets the risk profile of debt with the upside of equity. And that's why he's been able to, to deliver those returns 
with no negative months since inception. So he's one of the few strategies globally that hasn't had a negative month over such a prolonged period. So he's been going since the middle of 2015, so that's almost seven years. Um, so it's a really unique strategy. We went into that partnership with David because we knew David really well. He was already doing this strategy for a big US hedge fund. Um, he was looking to go out on his own, but didn't want to build all the operations and marketing and all that sort of stuff. So he just gets to do his thing and we provide all of the you know, back office and, and operational expertise. Uh, we've also got an international fund run by David Steinfall. Um, David used to be portfolio manager for the Lowy family for almost a decade. Um, he has a portfolio of what I would regard as sort of indestructible, high quality compounders. You know, the best companies in the world is, is what he's buying. He's looking to deliver a double digit return um, over the long term. He's, he's delivered that already. He's been going for around three years. Um, it's a very high quality concentrated portfolio, typically 20 to 40 stocks. And um, he's, he's based in Sydney with his team. Long only? Long only. Yep. Um, so no shorting, no, um, no derivatives. Then we've got um, a relatively new fund called our Catalyst Fund. Um, that's a high conviction strategy. So it's a, it's a long only fund as well, but it typically holds only eight to 10 positions. So it's the stocks that we believe have the highest risk reward that we see across the Aussie market. It can invest overseas, but it tends to be purely Australia. Um, it's led by James Hawkins. Um, James was an investment banker for 20 years. He, he worked at Macquarie for a decade. He worked at Flagstaff for a decade. And he's been a good friend of ours for, you know, been friends with Rafi since university days, so about 25 years ago. And it's a best ideas fund, but it's also got an activist angle to it as well. So there's the potential to encourage boards to crystallize value for shareholders in some way that they might have overlooked or some, some angle they may not have thought of. And um, he's off to a fantastic start. He's done around 25% return in the first nine months. Um, the market's done roughly 5% over the same period. And um, it's one that we're really excited about over the long term. We think it's a really unique strategy. James has some really unique skills and contacts within that space as well. And um, yeah, we're, we're, we're delighted with the way that's going. And the property fund? Yes, so the last, the last one I was gonna cover is the UK property fund. So that's a strategy where we're buying residential blocks of apartments in the major cities, excluding London. So places like Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Birmingham, um, you're getting incredibly attractive rental yields. You can, you can find that in some of these cities, the vacancy rate is even lower than in London. So if you look at Birmingham or you look at Manchester, you might only have one or 2% vacancy rate. You've got rental yields that are incredibly attractive um, compared to the cost of debt, even in today's market. And then you've got a property market where it's only just starting to get the benefit of the integration of infrastructure into those cities. So places like Birmingham and Manchester now have high-speed rail where if you're in Birmingham, you can get to the centre of London in 45 minutes and it used to take over two hours. So there's some structural changes happening that we think haven't been reflected in property prices. An average property in Birmingham or Manchester might be 70% cheaper than in London. That made sense when it was two hours apart. Maybe it doesn't make sense when it's 40 minutes apart. And I think there's some opportunities like that that we're really excited by. Um, those funds are seven-year closed-end funds which um, obviously is a different um, proposition than our other funds, which have you know, much, much easier liquidity. But we think um, whenever there's a niche or there's an opportunity that we think we would be prepared to put a lot of our own money into, uh, we're prepared to do that. You know, Raf and I have almost 100% of our personal wealth invested in our funds. Um, we don't do any personal share trading. So in terms of you know, eating our own cooking, we're doing that as much as possible. Terrific, that's a, a great summary. Before I conclude and leave it there, what should I have asked you that I haven't? Um, 
That's a great question. I, I haven't thought about anything, but I think one, one thing would be, I think, the culture at L1. Um, one of the things that you know, I spend a lot of my time um, personally involved in is the hiring decisions, the, the things that we stand for as a business. Um, I think it's one of the real differentiators and it's very hard to, to prove to someone that we've got a culture that's different from other funds or from other businesses. And I think if you speak to people at L1, um, they, they love working at L1. You know, there's one of the guys in our operations team, Dave Goss, who, who's uh, yeah, hilarious. He's, a, he's an Irish guy, he's got a great sense of humor. And when someone joins on day one, he, I, won't, I won't try and imitate his accent, but he says, oh, you're gonna love it here. You know, you're gonna absolutely love it. He goes, you'll never leave. And when I hear that, that just gives me such a buzz because we've built a culture where people are genuinely working as a team. People enjoy each other's company. There's a real um, dynamic of people wanting to, us to be the best. And it's not you know, trying to backstab the person next to you and be political and all of the stuff that is very common in finance. There's a genuine team focus where you're rewarded for helping someone else. You're rewarded for um, taking on some initiative. And I think we've got a great culture of giving people autonomy, giving people every opportunity to succeed. And you know, I think that's why we've had such good retention over time. We have very little turnover in, in, across all of our teams, investment team, operations, marketing, because of the culture we've built. And, and hopefully um, we'll be able to retain that long-term because that's the biggest focus for me is to be able to keep that culture and keep that positive energy that is ultimately gonna be the determinant of whether we succeed or not. Um, you know, I'm involved in every interview for every person at L1, I'll chat to them before they join. Now, I don't need to do that, but I wanna do that because I wanna check that they've got the same values as what Raf and I have. And if they have that, well, then they're probably gonna, they're not gonna be the bad apple that wrecks the culture. And you know, I don't know how much longer I can keep doing that because we've grown to, you know, we've got sort of almost 45 people at L1 now. So we're growing to a, a size where maybe I can't do that for the next decade, but as long as I can do that, I'd love to keep that because I think that culture is genuinely unique. Terrific. I think that's a wonderful place to finish the podcast. Thank you very much, Mark Landau, for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.